The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we turn to God's Word and we're turning to the book of Mark and working through the book of Mark and we've come to the end of chapter 7. Last week, Pastor York covered the first half of Mark chapter 7 and if you take the chapter as a whole, Mark chapter 7 is really an, an ironic twist, if you will, that highlights the humble, persistent faith that leads to salvation. See, last week, Jesus was in Israel teaching in the synagogues, teaching God's people, the the Israelites. And yet as he was teaching in Israel, he he meets the Pharisees and and gets into a, a clash, a hard clash with the unbelief of the Pharisees in Israel who are clinging to their traditions instead of loving and obeying God. Well, here at the end of chapter 7, Jesus is going to leave Israel and travel into the region of Tyre and Sidon and meet a Gentile woman, the last person an Israelite would expect to express genuine faith in God. And yet here, here is where we will find the great display of faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me to Mark 7 and start reading at verse 24, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. And from there, he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. God, we thank you for passing down through the ages to us your words. Not just a report of what you have done, though it is that, but but your words spoken to your people. May we grow in our knowledge of you and our love and our gratitude for you tonight. 
as we study your words. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we enter the passage here, the last we'd heard of Jesus after his disputation with the Pharisees, he was on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee near the town of Gennesaret. That's the town where he had healed the demoniac men and, and seen uh, herds of pigs flying into, into the lake. So we're familiar with, with that story. He was in that region again at the beginning of chapter 7. And from there, it seems that he traveled further north and further west toward the Mediterranean Sea and ends in this region of Tyre and Sidon. It's a large region. It's hard to tell specifically where he ended up. It tells us the region he's in, not the city he's in. But here he is in a largely Gentile area. There certainly would have been Jews living there, but but it's largely Gentile. And we're told that Jesus entered a house where he hoped to stay for a while where no one would know where he was. And I think any one of us can sympathize if we do a quick review of Jesus' schedule over the last few days and chapters, why he'd want a few days rest. Jesus, here in chapter 7, has come off a disputation with, with the Pharisees, but in addition to that, a lengthy, lengthy day or several days of healing all of the sick that they had brought to him. Before that, he was up at night walking across the wind and the waves to the disciples in the middle of the night. Uh, where they were on the boat rowing across the sea and, and, and comforting and rescuing the disciples. Before that, he was feeding the 5,000. And remember, that happened because he had come to a desolate place and taught all day long. And before that, he had been sending out the, the 12 apostles. And before that, he was rejected at Nazareth. We get, we get this action-packed narrative and mark of what Jesus has done. And I can only imagine that, that Jesus is retreating here to the region of Tyre to rest for a few days and a place that he's more likely to go unnoticed. But if going unnoticed was his goal, he was not successful. We find out verse verse 24 here, yet he could not be hidden. Immediately, it says immediately, a woman whose little daughter is sick comes to him. Here it is, here is this young mother, a young Gentile woman who's at his door almost immediately begging him to heal her little daughter who is possessed by a demon. Well, here's the setting of the story, but almost immediately the story gets very interesting and possibly a little confusing. Because as soon as we get into the story, we've seen Jesus in enough interactions to kind of know what to expect from Jesus. And yet what we get here in the story is not what we would expect. This is, this is Jesus here. Jesus we're talking about. The Jesus who sat with a prostitute from Samaria, a woman at the well, and called her to faith in him and forgave her sins. This is the Jesus who did not condemn an adulterous woman, but forgave her and called her to go sin no more. This is the Jesus who's moved with compassion for multitudes, such that he he will not send them away. This is the Jesus who's come to save people from every tribe and every nation, and yet here we seem to have a Jesus who is ignoring or rejecting this woman's plea for help, saying, it's not right for me to give the children's bread to dogs not the response we expect to hear from our Savior. In fact, if you were to flip over to Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, Matthew actually records a few more details and tells us that Jesus' response is, uh, takes even a few more steps than Mark rehearses. Matthew 15, starting in, in verse 21, I'll just 
read a few of the verses here. We, starting in verse 21, Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon. In verse 22, it says, A Canaanite woman from that region came and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Here in Matthew, verse 23 of chapter 15, But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she gives the same response, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus responds, O woman, great is your faith. Be done to you as you desire. Here in, in Matthew, we put this, there's almost like a three-step three step pushing away that Jesus seems to be giving. She cries out for help, and he ignores her and doesn't say anything to her. And she keeps crying out to him such that the disciples say, we've got to get this woman out of here. And Jesus says, yeah, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And still she comes and says, Lord, help me. And that's when he comes and says, hey, not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And it's only after the third rejection as she gives this, this response that even the dogs may eat the crumbs from the table that Jesus finally heals her. So what, what is going on here? It's, it's no wonder, I think, in the context of who Jesus is, that this is a, a much-discussed and much-debated passage amongst the commentators. I have, to, uh, I have to admit, you know, if it were Peter who were talking to this woman, or perhaps James or John, these sons of thunder, you know, this kind of response would seem perfectly fitting. Of course, you know, they're busy, they're tired, they're going to, you know, uh, reject this, this woman. Even if it were me, if it were you and I, after a busy day, uh, who, and we just wanted some rest, we wanted to go somewhere where no one would bother us, and here's someone coming with more work concerns. All right, I would probably respond in a grumpy rejection, but, but Jesus? You know, what, what's happening here? Whenever I, I was thinking about this, whenever I read this story, I was thinking about a short op-ed article that I read in the Ephrata Review probably two years ago now. It was a local pastor who was writing, was writing a short piece on how Jesus is a good example for us to follow. And this local pastor interpreted this passage and he said, see, here in this passage we have Jesus as a good example of repenting when we sin. Because the local pastor said clearly Jesus was sinning in his response to the woman here, and, uh, and the woman brought, confronted him for his sin, and therefore he responded, realizing his error, and went ahead and healed her. Let's just say with all the debate, we'll rule out blasphemy and heresy from the start and see if we can move through Jesus' response and see if we can understand what he's up to and why he would respond this way. Well, let's, let's look first at, at Jesus' response Uh, to this woman according to Matthew, he starts out, the first thing he says to her was, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, which is a bit of an odd statement since from the Old Testament we've been told that he was coming as a light for the Gentiles. So why this statement that he was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel? I think we need to, to make a distinction here between the final goal of Jesus' ministry and the plan by which God brought Jesus and brought the Savior to all mankind. Certainly the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is that the power of God for salvation is for both the Jew and the Gentile, to all to the ends of the earth. But we need to remember that God plays out his work of redemption 
according to a specific and historical plan. And, and Jesus' earthly ministry, while it certainly gives hints that Gentiles are included in the plan of salvation, is to come as Israel's Messiah. If you think even back to Abraham, you remember when God makes a promise to Abraham, and God promises that through him, through Abraham, will come a blessing to all the nations. But it's important to remember that that blessing is going to come through Israel, through a Messiah that will come to Israel. And if you think back to the Old Testament, you'll think of a number of times that talk about how Israel's Messiah is coming. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's there to fulfill Israel, Israelite law, the prophecies that were given to Israel. He is the Messiah of God's people, the promised one coming to Israel. And it's as he fulfills that role of the promised one to Israel, all the way to the point of death and resurrection, that he will then open the gate to all the nations. But it's interesting, and this isn't the only place Jesus indicates that his earthly ministry is primarily to the people of Israel as their Messiah. You might think even back to Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus sent his disciples out. He sent the disciples out with these instructions, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Jesus' ministry is to come to Israel and proclaim that the kingdom of God is here, the one that's been promised to Israel for all all their generations throughout the Old Testament. And it's once Israel's Messiah comes and goes through death and resurrection that he then, through Israel, opens the floodgates to all the nations. And so it's perfectly accurate, I think, for Jesus here to say, look, here I am in my earthly ministry and I'm here as the Messiah of Israel. I'm here sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And yes, certainly, the day is coming when all people will hear the good news. But this is my mission here. But this still begs a question here. It still begs the question, why is Jesus saying this to this woman? Is Jesus telling his mission to the woman in order to scare her off? Like, here you are looking for healing, but look, you're not my mission right now. So, you know, fill in the blanks. You might as well go away. I don't think so. That's not what, what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who does all things well. I think what Jesus is doing here, as, as many who look at this passage agree, is giving this woman a test. And this is a situation where a test was necessary. Because if you were a resident of the first century, you would know that there were all sorts of miracle workers that would go around offering healing. There were even Jewish rabbinic traveling healers who would offer sort of a magical or, or, or healing opportunity. It's certainly possible that this woman would be coming to Jesus just wanting a miracle. She might even be willing to pay for a miracle. That's what would have been expected by any of these itinerant rabbis who'd be coming around offering to work some healings. But Jesus isn't into the healing miracle working business. Jesus is here to reveal the miraculous power of God, to show who he is, to point towards himself as the Son of God and to confirm faith in himself as the hope of all mankind. And so Jesus puts out a test for this woman to know, are you just here for for a healing? you just here for a miracle? Or do you know who I am? Are you here for me? Are you here to put your faith in me as the Son of God? 
Do you realize, does this woman realize that she has no claim on his help, but can only beg for the uncovenanted mercy of God? I think this is what Jesus is, is up to here. How will this woman respond? What is she looking for and why? Well, Jesus, if, if he begins by not answering her and then presses on to say, well, I was sent only to the lost house of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, well, presses the test a step further by sharing this, this story or this parable, which puts the woman in the place of a dog under the children's table. Well, this certainly seems a bit insulting. Say, well, here's the story. It's not right to give the children's food to the dogs under the table. Is he calling this woman a dog? Some of you probably know that many in Israel would refer to Gentiles as dogs in a very disparaging and condescending term. But the term that was used for dogs when disparagingly talking about Gentiles is not the word that's used here. And pretty much every commentator I consulted agreed that that Jesus seems to be telling a parable or telling perhaps even a well-known saying or story, which is emphasizing it's not appropriate for me to be distracted from the main reason I'm here and take my attention and focus away from my main goal. So the use of dogs here isn't isn't a, a condescending point. The point is that Jesus should not help her at the expense of his ministry to Israel. And again, it's another test along the same lines that we've already had. One more test that Jesus is giving this woman so that he might see what her response is and that the world might hear her faith. I really like the summary that one commentator gives of this moment in the story. He says this, he said, There were many miracle workers who attracted popular followings throughout the Greek world. The power of God, however, is properly used not in a context of superstition and magic, but in response to faith. The woman clearly understood this and did not hesitate before the apparent obstacles set before us. Her response, I love the woman's response, her response in this this saying, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs, is as if to say, yes, by all means, let the children be fed. Do your ministry to Israel. But might not even those of us around be fed from the overflow of your ministry? If you are the Son of God, there is an overflow of your ministry, and might not we too be blessed from the overflow of what you are here to do? What a perfect and humble response, isn't it? A perfect and humble response to the person of Jesus. Yes, Jesus, your ministry is as Savior of Israel, but let us Gentiles be blessed from the overflow of your power and your compassion and your mercy. You know, I think, think about what Jesus must have been feeling or how he would have responded to this woman as she pressed forward through three obstacles, three tests, if you will. His silence, his initial response, his, his second response. And each time she presses and says, Lord, help. Lord, have mercy. Yes, Lord, but let me benefit from the overflow of blessings. And you know, it's, you think about this sort of persistence. And you think about our own lives and you think, what, what is... What is one of the situations that makes it most evident that we care about someone? I think one of the situations that makes it most evident that we care about someone is when we consistently reject other offers or other opportunities in order to be with someone. As, as 
as a father or a husband, I can imagine, you know, I'm invited to this event or, or I'm invited by this friend to watch a game over here or, or maybe there's a work or church function here. But by saying no to all of these in order to be with my, my wife or my family, I'm demonstrating in a tangible way that I care about them. And I think, I think the act of saying no to alternatives and pressing on to be with someone is a great sign of who our priority is and who we care about. And here is this woman who three times has an opportunity to turn away. Three times has an opportunity to, okay, say, Jesus said no, I don't have, I don't have a chance here. And three times she presses on to Jesus. And I think this persistence must have, have delighted Jesus. I love Matthew's report when he says, O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And you can imagine almost reading between the lines Jesus' smile and his delight and his tone of compassion as he says this to the woman. Here, a Gentile, here outside of Israel, Jesus has found a great, humble, persistent expression of faith in him. Well, on the heels of helping this Syrophoenician woman, Jesus then, verse 31 says, heads back toward the Sea of Galilee and comes to the town of Decapolis. This is another region that a large mix of Gentile and, and, and Jews. And the text doesn't tell us whether the man who's healed here is a, a Jew or Gentile, but it's another episode in the ministry of Jesus that emphasizes the faith, faith of those who are in the story, their faith in Jesus. And it's another story that upholds the power and compassion of Jesus. This account describes a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Now, it's interesting, the term there is not the same term for mute. It doesn't seem that this person is someone who would have been born mute and deaf, but perhaps someone who became deaf later on, and so his ability to speak clearly was hindered, but he was not completely mute. This man, like the paralytic back in chapter 2, is brought by his friends. This may bring back visions of Mark chapter 2, where four friends carried a paralytic to Jesus. And this, these friends may not have to chop a, a roof up to get their friends to Jesus, but, but it's clearly the friends who are bringing this man to Jesus, and it's the friends' faith that's on display first. They are the ones who go the, to the work to bring their friend to Jesus and who beg Jesus. They beg him to lay hands on him and heal him. So faith in this case is first expressed by these friends. Now, of all the healings that we have the little ritual, well, if that's the right word, that Jesus goes through here is perhaps one of the most puzzling. He sticks his fingers in the man's ears and he spits on his fingers and touches the man's tongue. And then he looks up to heaven and then he sighs. And you imagine him going through the motions here and, and part of him is like, oh, that's kind of gross. I don't know if I'd want him spitting on his fingers and touching my tongue or, or what, what's going on here. But this, what Jesus does here is the perfect way a perfect way for Jesus to communicate what he is doing and how he's going to do it to a man who can't hear. How does this man even know who Jesus is? We wonder, this man is, is deaf, he can't hear. Did, were the friends able to tell him what they were doing or did they just grab him and start running and here's this guy has no idea who he's with and who he's before. He has no idea perhaps that he's before a man with whom the power of God dwells. But Jesus, in great compassion and perfect clarity, shows the man that he longs to heal his ears, to give him back his ability to speak. 
And he sighs and looks up to heaven, showing the man that this healing comes from God himself. And he sighs, showing that it comes through prayer. And a prayer lifted up to God. One commentator wrote this. He said, all the actions here in verse 33 and 34 were miming the man's present need, the process of healing, and the source from which healing alone could come in a way that even a deaf man who couldn't hear and could hardly speak could understand. Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, communicates even in how he heals to this man. I think it's worth noting here in response to this healing that the people are astonished and they make the fitting declaration that Jesus has done all things well. An appropriate description of Jesus and who he is and what he does. He has done all things well. But I think it's important to note also this story doesn't just stand as an example of Jesus' healing power. It's not just that Jesus does all things well. This, this story also reminds us exactly who Jesus is and why Jesus would have been so significant as he shows up in Israel. If you just think back to the Old Testament and you think back to the prophecies of the prophets, who they told the Israelites to watch for. I'm thinking particularly of Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6 says this, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. You see what we have here? We have the one who was promised coming to unstop the ears of the deaf and to lead mute tongues singing for joy. And so to God's weary people, when they see the tongues loosed and the ears unstopped, this can only mean one thing. Behold, your God has come to save you. That was, his, that was Isaiah's prophecy. Your God will come to save you and this is what you will see. Here's what we're seeing. What does this mean? God has shown up to save Israel just as he promised back in Isaiah. He is here proclaiming the hope of God arrived to save his people. Well, I think, especially in light of this, here's God shown up to save his people. I think we have to at least briefly comment on verse 36. Jesus charged them to tell no one. And we've seen this once or twice before, but again, this response still puzzles us sometimes. Jesus is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess him. If every tongue is going to confess him, why is he telling people not to talk about him? Why is he saying, don't tell people what I've done? And of course, the people don't listen. But it's worth remembering why Jesus would several times urge those he's healed not to spread his praise. If you think back to Mark chapter 1, this was the first time in Mark where Jesus urged people not to tell about his uh, healing that he had done. Jesus healed a leper. And after he healed a leper, he was immediately mobbed by crowds, surrounded as a miraculous healer, and Mark makes the comments, he was mobbed such that he could no longer go about in the city. People misunderstood who Jesus was, flocked around him like a miracle worker, and hindered his ability to move around the city. And so, Jesus, again, remember, his goal is not to just make everyone know he can do miraculous things. His goal in doing these miracles is a confirmation of faith. It's not an advertisement for his popularity. 
It's not, he, Jesus is not interested in everyone knowing about his healings. He's interested in demonstrating who he is to those who trust in him. And so Jesus is not interested in a general broadcast of what he's done. He's interested in going and proclaiming who he is and using these miracles strategically in order to confirm faith. Well, these are two stories of faith, two stories of healing. I want to finish by mentioning two applications that I think come from these stories. First, it's worth us noticing the, the nature of the humble, persistent faith, particularly of this woman from Tyre. Also, though, of the friends who desperately bring their, their deaf friend to Jesus. You know, if we, again, take a few more details from the Matthew account, we see this woman who cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. This is the perfect start, the perfect cry, a cry of a humble heart. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. After Jesus' initial response that he's only sent to, to Israel, she pursues him with a persistence. But as she pursues him, she doesn't demand something from him. She doesn't pursue him and say, Jesus, you've got to heal my daughter. Somehow, I think what our persistence looks like, come on, God, <laughs> I need you to do this for me. She doesn't do that. She pursues him, kneels down and says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And in response to Jesus' statement that, that the dog should, should not get the food intended for the children, she responds that even dogs can benefit from the overflow of provision that the children enjoy. She doesn't put herself in the position and say, well, I ought to be the ch- child. I ought to be the one who gets this. Don't you see how much I'm ne- in need? She says, granted, but even, even dogs can get an overflow of blessing. At each response, this woman does not presume on Jesus. At each response, she doesn't demand something from Jesus. But she does know that he is the one who can help her. And so she pursues that help relentlessly. She is aware of her place and of her need for mercy and help, but she's also aware that she stands before the one person capable of giving her help. He is the Lord. I think, I think of my own life and I think of my own prayers and I'm, I'm ashamed to think of how often I may pray for something. May, maybe I'll even pray a few times. And how quickly my prayers stop. How quickly I lose steam. I'm continuing to pray for something that I long for. I'm, I'm challenged and reminded of my father-in-law's faithfulness in prayer when we were in college. If I could characterize myself in college, I would say that I was primarily interested in good grades and frisbee. And so, for the first three years of college, you know, girls were out there, but they weren't nearly as good as Frisbee. And so, it took me a while to get around to dating my wife. But she, on the other hand, knew fairly quickly that I was the type of person that she could marry, and she, she told her dad that, and, and he said to her, he said, well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray daily that if God wants you two to be together, that, that he'll bring you together. And so he did. He prayed daily for almost two years before I finally gave up Frisbee and came around to what mattered. This is persistence. Persistence in prayer. And it's an example of what I so often lack. I long to have this combination of persistence and humility. It's displayed by this woman. A faith that knows who Jesus is, knows that he's the hope that we need, and yet doesn't presume or demand A faith that steadily puts ourselves at Jesus' feet, that steadily puts our requests before him, undeterred, undistracted, undiscouraged. 
humble persistence before our God. May we have this kind of faith. Secondly, secondly, we should notice how Jesus displays his boundless love, compassion, and goodness. I wonder how many times, whether we're willing to admit it, how many times we begin to doubt the goodness of God. Situations in life that bring us face-to-face with the question of, well, if God was really good and cared for me, why am I where I am? And the situations of this woman and this man seem to me perfect pictures of the scenarios in which we so quickly start doubting God's goodness. You think about this woman and think about what she goes through here. And think about our lives. Circumstances in life seem to be getting worse and worse. God doesn't seem to be at work. Maybe it even seems like God's ignoring you. And here's this woman. She cries out and Jesus ignores her. We feel like that sometimes, that God is ignoring our requests. Maybe we feel like God seems not only to be ignoring us, but specifically rejecting us, or maybe just out to give us a hard time. How many times do we sit back and wonder, what in the world is happening to me? This doesn't seem to be the God that the Scripture presents. How does my life meet up with who I know God is? But the Gospel stories remind us that sometimes this is exactly how God works. This is exactly how God works to shape us into the people that he wants us to be. This is certainly the case with our, the woman in our text tonight. Jesus' responses to her were intended, were given with purpose to put her faith on display, to put her faith on display for his glory, for her own growth, for the benefit of the church that would read this. She and her faith were brought to completion through this test, or at least were, were grown through this test. I think also of another story that we've read recently of, of Jesus asleep on the boat. You remember when the dis- disciples were in the boat and the storm comes up on the boat and Jesus is asleep on the back of the boat. And the disciples come to Jesus as they're about to sink. They're panicked. And they say, Jesus, how in the world are you asleep? Don't you care about us? Don't you know that we're going to die? Well, of course Jesus cares. That's why he was asleep. Jesus was asleep to show them their lack of faith, to put them in a situation where they had to run to him and depend upon him, to show the extent of his power and who he was. Jesus, in his response to this woman, his response to the disciples, uses these delays, uses these opportunities exactly the way he intends to, to deepen our faith and our dependence upon him. And so in situations as we doubt God's goodness, these stories remind us of who he is and how he works and enable us to trust him more in the moment that we need it most. On the other hand, think of this this deaf man. Think of how many times I'm distracted by life. I'm distracted by the hurt or the suffering or the things or the busyness that are going on in my life, and I don't stop or can't stop or won't stop to hear what God is doing, to listen to God's word. Now, how many times has God been faithful to us when we weren't even paying attention to him? There are some times in my life where I can slip into this, this habit of thinking, well, you know, I have a pretty solid faith in God, and, and you know, God's been pretty faithful as a response to my faith. That, of course, is wrong. And any one of us can immediately think of many instances in our life where we have not even been thinking, perhaps, of God 
and he has been at work in our life. When we haven't even been focused on who God is, and he has been showing his mercy and his grace and compassion to us. When we have been distracted, when we have been deaf, and yet God was pressing through in his mercy to be at work in our lives. Think of, I think of that when I think of this deaf man whose only role seems to have been brought by his friends and placed before Jesus. He's brought here, unable to listen, and God heals him out of his power and compassion. There are times in life when through busyness, distraction, or hurt, we're not listening to God. But he is the one who is at work in us and heals us. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is the one we need. Jesus is the one with all power to save and to heal. He is the one who does all things well. I pray as we read these stories tonight that we would know we need to be made new. But here is the one who can help. Here is the one who offers hope. Come to him. Live in humble, persistent faith toward him. And then I pray that we would all imitate these crowds who at the end of the text, it says, they zealously proclaimed him. Isn't he worthy of zealous proclaiming? We depend upon this Savior. What a glorious Savior we have. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for these stories of Jesus' work in people's lives. As Jesus came to earth, he entered real lives, real situations of people who were hurting. And he unleashed the power of God, the promised power, the power that was looked for throughout the Old Testament, throughout God's people, the power of of the Savior. I pray that our hearts, our attitude, would be to come before this God with humble faith that does not presume upon you, but recognizes you for who you are and therefore is a persistent faith. I thank you for your faithfulness to us in so many situations that we do not deserve. May we eagerly proclaim your praises zealously as we see all things that you have done so very well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.